So this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which in the Christian understanding is the beginning of Lent. And Lent in the Christian understanding is a time of emptying ourselves out to prepare for Easter. Now some people give up things for Lent. For Lent. Sometimes people take up a new practice during Lent but all, all by way of trying to prepare for the coming of the sacred represented in Easter. And so I thought I would talk about emptying and emptiness tonight. Kind of this, this worldwide archetypal dynamic of ways that people choose to empty themselves out to receive the sacred. And I'll begin with a couple Christian readings, readings from the New Testament. One is a famous passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but entered himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should, be, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So tremendous amount of, of Christian imagery in that, actually. Um, but certainly that image that Jesus came and emptied himself out fully though he was equal to God he did not grasp at being equal to God but took the form of a servant instead and that that line he humbled himself and became obedient unto death I realize that obedience is not a very popular idea in uh, 2024 in the Bay Area. And just just to put in a word for it, I think there have been a number of instances in, uh, in religions in the West and the East when vows of obedience or relationships of obedience have been very positive. Um, of course, in our own culture, we can think all too easily of all kinds of exploitative situations where someone, someone says to somebody else, you need to obey me, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but even if we discount obeying somebody else, are we obedient to the part of us that really knows what's best for us? Are we obedient to our own best nature? You know, and what would it mean to be obedient in that way? You know, it, it would be a kind of ego death, you know, to be truly obedient at all times to what we knew what was best for us. Another passage is from a, a hymn by Mary in the Gospel of Luke called the Magnificat. Um, it's a famous prayer in the history of Christianity. It was set to music several times, uh, most, most significantly by Mr. Johann Sebastian Bach. But this is a, in an English version. This is just a, a couple lines from the Magnificat. Mary said, 
God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their throne and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. And so again, this kind of rewarding emptiness and, and punishing fullness, you know. And I love that, that particular image. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. You know, and what, what do we imagine in our hearts? And how proud are we of that, you know? It's an interesting thought. The last from the, the Christian gospel is just a line from the Beatitudes from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for holiness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And again, such a, such a vivid, visceral image, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know. We, we all have a sense of the things that we should be doing, you know, you know, if we really had our act together, we really were serious about improving our lives. You know, we talk about, yeah, I would do X, Y, and Z if I were, you know. But are we hung? Do we have hunger and thirst to do the things that are good for us? Do we have hunger and thirst for authenticity? Hunger and thirst to follow our be- our deepest interests. You know, it's a very challenging question. From Eastern texts, from the Tao Te Ching. He who keeps the Tao does not want to be full, but precisely because he is never full, he can always remain like a hidden sprout and does not rush to early ripening. And I love that idea, you know, how how many times do we rush to early ripening in so many things, you know? Another quote from the Tao Te Ching. Pursuing knowledge each day, pursuing knowledge each day something is gained. Following the Tao, each day something is lost, lost and lost again, until there's nothing left to do. And that, that last line requires a little comment, the idea that following the Tao, everything is lost, but in the process of everything being lost, there's nothing left to do because one aligned with the Tao, there's a natural flow in life. If I'm going with the flow, everything that needs to happen is happening, you know, and it's, it's head separate from the Tao that gets stuck in these loops of, but there must be something else to do. What should I be doing? You know, this kind of thing. From Zhuangzi, If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his skiff, even though he is bad-tempered, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the other boat, he will scream and shout and curse at the man to steer clear. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you, no one will seek to harm you. Thus the perfect man, his boat is empty. That's a, a powerful poetic image. The final quote I'll share is from Bodhidharma, who was the founder of Zen, the man who brought Zen to China. Not thinking about anything is then, is Zen. 
Once you know this, walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, everything you do is Zen. To know that the mind is empty is to see the Buddha. Using the mind to look for reality is delusion. Not using the mind to look for reality is awareness. Freeing oneself from words is liberation. So again, this profound idea, very much emphasizing the Zen tradition of this intentional emptying out that brings us to the Buddha experience. So these are a number of of images from East and West about this dynamic, intentionally emptying ourselves out to bring the sacred into our lives. And I want to point out this dynamic is, is really in some ways the polar opposite of the experience that modern people have of being empty inside, of running on empty, of feeling like they're, they're emotionally or spiritually empty. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for this. Um, I think it's natural that in, in early childhood and patterns of early childhood wounding, the places most likely to get wounded are the most vulnerable and sensitive places. And so then they, those get shut down and walled off and, you know, ego winds up living in the head, which, which we can pretend is a safe place, a controllable place, but cut off from all these more juicy, vital places. Um, and that naturally leaves ego feeling empty, cut off from life because the person is cut off from their own vitality. Um, Self-love and healing is a very long process. I've talked about this in other Dharma talks. I'll just say, I, briefly, I think the essence of self-love is we always need to love the places that feel unlovable, accept the places that feel unacceptable, and forgive the places that feel unforgivable. Another way to think a little more about the, the dynamics of healing is actually to think in terms of the biology of hunger. There's a fascinating thing about hunger. Hunger is innate. From the time, you know, even before we have words, from our, our first weeks alive, no one had to teach us to be hungry. We knew when we were hungry, you know. Um, and hunger lets us know of know about its existence through a variety of means. We feel stomach rumbling, we feel weak, we start to fantasize about foods that we want to eat. Like, they're just overlapping unmistakable signs of hunger. So we know very clearly when we haven't had enough to eat or when we need more to eat. But on the opposite side, the line between enough and too much, how do we discern that? You know, the, the feeling of having just enough is called satiety or being sated, you know. And unlike hunger, which is innate and unmistakable, satiety is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly subtle. It takes an incredible amount of attention and focus. Um... You know, even paying attention to it, it's really only 20 or 30% of the time that I can actually be conscious enough to stop eating at satiety. You know, if, if there's any kind of conversation or I'm enjoying the food, 
then then I miss the subtle signal entirely, you know. So hunger is learned, but hunger is innate. It's not learned at all, but satiety has to be learned. And in fact, it takes a certain amount of, of discipline to master satiety, you know. So, so very asymmetrical. We're, and it kind of makes sense evolutionarily. Evolutionarily, our, our ancestors, you know, hunting and gathering societies, hunger was a big threat to them. They had to know when they were hungry. Overeating was rarely a threat in those days. So they, there, there weren't well-enforced mechanisms for that. Now, of course, overeating is probably a bigger issue than hunger in, in society, but that's another issue. Now, the funny thing about that biological difference between physical hunger and physical satiety, having not enough and having enough, it's exactly the same. That exact same model applies with all our emotional hungers, with our hunger for attention, for affection, for appreciation, for validation, for respect. We're very keenly aware when we're not getting enough. But do we, do we really know that line between enough and too much? You know? When am I getting too much attention? When am I getting too much validation? You know? And a subtle thing also about that dynamic is that unlike with physical hunger, with physical hunger I actually have to go and find physical food, but with the emotional hungers, many of those are things I can give myself. I can give myself attention, affection, appreciation, validation, respect. And in fact, in my experience, the more I'm able to give those to myself, the less I'm craving them from outside sources. You know, so that's actually, I think, an important practice in moving towards self-love. How can I give myself attention? How can I give myself affection? You know, this sort of thing. And I think the paradox also is, if, if I don't respect myself and I'm hungry for respect, probably I'm not going to be behaving in a way that's going to elicit a whole lot of respect from others. But if I do respect myself, then I'm going to be likely to be conducting myself in a way that's going to garner more respect from others. So the paradox is, you know, with the emotional hungers, often when we have the emotional hungers, the very fact that we have that hunger makes it hard to get the thing that we're looking for, you know. Whereas when we can nourish ourselves, we're more likely to get that. When I can nourish my own appreciation, it makes it much easier for me to take in somebody else's appreciation, you know. Another way to think about how fullness and emptiness play out in human relations, I wasn't going to say a lot about this, but of course Wednesday, in addition to being Ash Wednesday, is also Valentine's Day. Kind of a a curious, you know, coming together of these two very different kinds of holidays. Um, but really, all romance at all levels, from early dating to ongoing relationships, is about a kind of emptying out. It's a kind of, you know, listening and letting go of being right and taking the other person's agenda and taking, per- taking their perspective into account and taking how they feel into account, a constant emptying out, forgiveness, you know, all these sorts of ways that we need to empty ourselves to further the ongoing of the relationship. And if two people can both do that, 
then a relationship can thrive over years, you know. When, when one person in a relationship is full of themselves, then the relationship doesn't go too far. So again, these are a number of ways to think about fullness and emptiness. And you might say that, in some ways, the culmination of, of this thought is the Buddhist idea of emptiness. It's a, it's a very complex technical idea. Um, my sense of it is that there are two layers of thinking about, ways, at least ways to think about emptiness. One is the way we perceive the world. We often perceive the world in our non-enlightened state of consciousness, papered over with our perceptions, with our judgments, with our evaluations, with what I like, what I don't like, with our stories, you know. Emptiness is about emptying all of that out, taking the world in in silence, taking the world in with this deep sense of mindfulness without any of the inner chatter, judging it. And so that is, that is one kind of, one aspect of Buddhist emptiness, being empty in receiving the world, being, as it were, a, a pure mirror receiving the world. A deeper aspect of emptiness has to do with the way I look at myself, and it's connected to the Buddhist idea of no self. Uh, Buddhism says that there is no separate individual, Mike. Mike, as a separate, as a separate individual, is an illusion. And what actually exists is the interconnection of all things. That the interconnection of all things is our primary reality, and that the the idea that you know I'm alone by myself is is a distortion. A way a, a neurobiologist framed it, he said, "We all have a functional I me mine." We, and you know, and there are people that have whatever brain imbalances, and they can't even they don't even have the functional I me mind. They can't form a state a stable personality. Those people are very sad. They have to be locked in institutions all the time. They can't negotiate the world at all. All of us, we have healthy I me mind. But he pointed out that on top of just this functional level, we often have this dramatic I, me, mine, you know. Here's what I think. You can't do that to me. This is mine. You know, like all the, all the emotional energy tied up in I, me, mine. And so the Buddhist idea of non-self, it's very much about deconstructing the dramatic I, me, mine. But of course it doesn't, it doesn't touch the, the functional I, me, mine. One lovely image of the Buddhist idea of no self is an image, I believe, from the Lotus Sutra called the Net of Indra. I think I've talked about this before. The Net of Indra, it's like a fishing net with these you know, strings crossing in a grid. And every place where two strings cross, there's a diamond. And every diamond reflects the whole of the net. And so if anything happens on any one part of the net, it's reflected in every diamond on the net. 
the Buddha says that is our existence. You know, and what happens to any one person in any one part of the world is having an influence on all of us. And it, in a deep sense, it belongs to me as much as my own experience. And so it's funny, the Buddhist idea of emptiness is not actually about, you know, it, it's only emptiness in the sense that it's emptying us of our ordinary way of looking at things, you know, but it actually is arriving at a much deeper fullness. I'll conclude with this kind of whimsical Zen story. Subhuti was the Buddha's disciple. He was able to understand the potency of emptiness, the viewpoint that nothing, nothing exists except in its relation of subjectivity and objectivity. One day Subhuti, in a mood of sublime emptiness, was sitting under a tree. Flowers began to fall about him. We are praising you for your discourse on emptiness, the gods whispered to him. But I have not spoken of emptiness, Subhuti said. You have not spoken of emptiness. We have not heard emptiness, the gods responded. This is true emptiness. And the blossoms showered upon Subhuti as rain. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. So on the first page, I have the Christian quotes. I have the the Zen story, the Taoist and Buddhist quotes. On the top of page two, a quote from a Tibetan writer, a Tibetan Buddhist. Emptiness is a mode of perception, a way of looking at experience. It adds nothing to and takes nothing away from the raw data of physical and mental events. You look at events in the mind and in the senses with no thought of whether there's anything lying behind them. This mode is also called emptiness because it's empty of the presuppositions we usually add to the experience in order to make sense of it, the stories and worldviews we fashion to explain who we are and the world we live in. Although these stories and views have their uses, the Buddhists found that the questions they raise of our true identity and of the reality of the world outside pulls attention away from direct experience of how events influence one another in the immediate presence. Thus, they get in the way when we try to understand and solve the problem of suffering. The Persian poet Hafiz said, how did the rose ever open its heart and give, this, give to this world all of its beauty? It felt the encouragement of the light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Henry David Thoreau said, As you simplify your life, the laws of the universe will be simpler. Solitude will not be solitude, poverty will not be poverty, nor weakness, weakness. Einstein said, A hundred times every day I remind myself that my inner and outer life depend on the labors of other men 
living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the measure as I've received and am still receiving. Some lines from a Wallace Stevens poem. He says, for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. It's a very enigmatic quote. Wallace Stephen also said, the world about us would be desolate except for the world within us. The mystic Henry Miller said, I know what the greatest cure is to give up to relinquish the surrender so that our little hearts may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. He also said, why are we so full of restraint? Why do we not give in all directions? Is it a fear of losing ourselves? Until we do lose ourselves, there could be no hope of finding ourselves. One of my favorite quotes from Wei Wu Wei, why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself and there isn't one. Beryl Markham said, I've learned that if you leave a place that you have lived and loved, lived in and loved, and where your yesteryears are buried deep, leave it any way except a slow way. Leave it the fastest way you can. Never turn back and never believe that an hour you remember is, is a better hour because it is dead. Past years seem safe ones, vanquished ones, while the future lives in a cloud, formidable from a distance. Anton de Saint-Exupéry, the author of The Little Prince, said, A single event can awaken in us a stranger totally unknown to us. To live is to be slowly born. Idris Shah says, quite simply, you must empty out the dirty water before you fill the pitcher with clean. Thich Nhat Hanh said, when Avi Lokita says that the sheet of paper is empty, he means it is empty of separate independent existence. It cannot just be by itself. It has to interbe with sunshine, the cloud, the forest, the logger, the mind, and everything else. It is empty of a separate self, but empty of a separate self means full of everything. Avi Lokita looked deeply into the five skandhas of form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness and he discovered that none of them can be by, by the self alone. Each can only interbe with all the others. So he tells us that form is empty. Form is empty of a separate self, but it is full of everything in the cosmos. Same is true with feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Ursula Le Guin said, We know that there is no help for us but from one another that no hand will save us if we do not reach out our hand. And the hand you reach out is empty as is mine. You have nothing, you possess nothing, you own nothing, you are free. All you have is what you are and what you give. Pema Chodron said, letting there be room for not knowing is the most important thing of all. When there's a big disappointment, we don't know if that's the end of the story. It may be the beginning of a great adventure. Life is like that. We don't know anything. We call it something bad. We call it good. But really, we just don't know. 
Bruce Lee said, It is not a daily increase, but a daily decrease. Hack away at the inessentials. Judith Blackstone said, The emptiness referred to in the teachings is not a vacancy or hollowness. It is not an escape from ourselves. It is the laying bare of ourselves. Mark Nepo said, It's like wearing gloves every time we touch someone and then forgetting we choose to put them on, we complain that nothing feels real. Our challenge each day is not to get dressed to face the world, but to unglove ourselves so that the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet and the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being, soft and unrepeatable. Sharon Salzberg said, We let go of what is inessential or distracting. We let go of a thought or feeling, not because we are afraid of it, or because we can't bear it or acknowledge it as a part of our experience, but because it is unnecessary. Adi Ashanti said, All that is necessary is to waken yourself to the radiant emptiness of spirit is to stop seeking something more or better or different and to turn your attention inward to awake the silence that you are. Veronica Roth said, quite simply, I belong to the people I love and they belong to me. They, the love and the loyalty I give them, form my identity far more than any word or group ever could. Amit Gupta said, Nothing in nature lives for itself. Rivers don't drink their own water. Trees don't eat their own fruit. Sun doesn't give heat for itself. Flowers don't spread fragrance for themselves. Living for others is the rule of nature, and therein lies the secret of life. And finally, Robert Merton says, Why fill the hearts with hope? Leave it empty for God.